Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Colm Quinn. We'll start, as we always do, with the region's news. In Manila, on the sidelines of the APEC Leaders' Summit, President Barack Obama called on China to end artificial island building in the hotly contested South China Sea. He also toured a vessel of the Philippine Navy and met with Philippine President Benigno Aquino and promised to transfer two additional ships to bolster Manila's fleet. In Moscow, China signed a contract to buy 24 fighter jets for $2 billion from Russia. The deal makes China the first country to purchase the Su-35 flanker, one of Russia's most advanced military assets. And that's the news. This week, we look at China's maritime strategy in the South and East China Seas. CSIS Freeman Chair in China Studies, Chris Johnson, gives an overview of how Xi Jinping has restructured and re-energized various components of the Chinese government and military to actively pursue military modernization and a maritime strategy in the Asia-Pacific. I thought what I would do before we get into China's maritime strategy is just give a sense of sort of the overview of Chinese military modernization, um, what we are contending with, and then talk a little bit about the maritime strategy. So we'll talk first about sort of Beijing's assessment of the threat. What, has, what is it that has driven Chinese military modernization? Then we'll take a look at uh, what I call an impressive but incomplete transformation that we'll look at what we've seen with Chinese military modernization so far, uh, very impressive hardware developments primarily, uh, but then talk a little bit about where they still have some things to do. And then, as I mentioned earlier, lastly, uh, does China indeed have a coherent maritime strategy? Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about Beijing's assessment of the threat. Um, it's clear that you know, their desire for advanced military capabilities stems from uh, their general assessment of the pillars of U.S. military power produ- uh, projection. Uh, this comes out of their assessment of U.S. military uh, activity over the last two decades, basically. The first Gulf War, the second Gulf War, uh, obviously, the Taiwan Strait Crisis in 95-96, uh, U.S. operations uh, also in Yugoslavia and elsewhere, uh, especially the uh, destruction of the Chinese embassy uh, in, in Belgrade in 1999. These were all formative things that caused them to uh, think about how they needed to uh, move forward with their strategy. Uh, and then a recognition uh, on the part of the PLA that these capabilities on the part of the U.S. amounted to an insurmountable obstacle for the PLA. Uh, While impressive, their display during the 1995-96 Taiwan Strait crisis was effectively a made-for-TV movie in terms of uh, real operational capability. Uh, They were completely unaware of where U.S. forces were because their situational awareness was so bad uh, at that time. Uh, I remember being part of the team who went to uh, let them know that we would be sending two aircraft carriers (laughs) through the Taiwan Strait because other than visually, they couldn't have known they were there at that time. Uh, And then, uh, of course, Chinese planners have responded by developing capabilities that are designed to counter each of the uh, U.S. pillars. And what are those? Uh, Aircraft carriers, obviously, air superiority and long-range precision strike, regional bases and alliances, and then space and information dominance. And uh, the key to this, of course, has also been sustained funding uh, for this. They have had, uh, from the 1996 timeframe, pretty much double-digit budget increases uh, and, of course, doubling the official defense budget every five-year plan uh, for the last three. So very obviously sustained and developed effort in this case. So let's talk a little bit about the transformation itself. Uh, As I mentioned, impressive but incomplete. 
Um, on the front end, I think uh, obviously the developments of advanced hardware are unquestionable. Um, there are several categories uh, of that that uh, we will talk a little bit about here. Um, obviously A2AD or anti-access area denial, this is something that's very well understood. I won't spend a lot of time dwelling on it. But basically targeting those uh, couple of main uh, capabilities uh, that the U.S. has. So submarines and anti-ship uh, cruise or ballistic missiles, obviously, to deter aircraft carriers, and then modern fighter aircraft and surface-to-air missiles to counter U.S. air superiority. Uh, and then um, the thing that's talked about a little bit less, I think, in the, in the Western space is uh, China's emerging electronic warfare and advanced C4 ISR capabilities. Uh, this really is, in some ways, the uh, kind of game-changing leap uh, that's been made in uh, their capability and their multi-layered approach to dealing with uh, the U.S. Chinese uh, EW arguably is the most important part of the A2AD revolution, in my assessment anyway, and yet it is one of the uh, least uh, well understood in the West. Um, and in short, it's basically the key information systems that enable U.S. joint operations, uh, most satellite communications, obviously, GPS, tactical data links, and HF communications uh, could be fundamentally degraded, especially the closer U.S. forces get to Chinese territory. Uh, similarly, advances in Chinese C4 ISR will be the great enabler of PLA capabilities. China's invested heavily since the mid-90s and will continue to do so. And it's generally assessed that by 2030, the PLA can be expected to have uh, persistent re reconnaissance from space-based platforms and near-space tactical platforms, whether those are imagery, ELINT, and SIGINT, and timely global reconnaissance for a robust uh, space-based architecture. And it would be, therefore, very hard for U.S. forces to hide from Chinese space, near-space, and terrestrial ISR, especially for large naval assets and forward-deployed forces. Um, and then there's the approach, uh, what I call a multi-layered approach uh, for dealing with U.S. bases and alliances. And this base, uh, basically breaks down to one kinetic uh, response that we're all well familiar with and one that's sort of diplomatic and political that uh, is not as well understood. Uh, obviously, they've deployed a host of theater range weapons, uh, medium range ballistic missiles, land attack <coughs> cruise missiles, um, air launched, air to ground, uh, standoff attack musicians, that make uh, the key U.S. spaces into high-value targets for the PLA and single points of failure for the United States. Uh, Chinese capabilities also make U.S. regional allies targets instead of sanctuaries, prompting a fundamentally more complicated calculation for those host governments, such as Japan and South Korea, uh, that risk further slowing the U.S. decision cycle in any type of conflict. And the dilemma, obviously, is not unique to our, our partners and allies. Uh, the acquisition of these systems also obviously would change the calculus of U.S. policymakers and senior military commanders when they consider the wisdom and implications of U.S. intervention in a conflict close to China's periphery. Um, you know, in the 90s, uh, as we looked at earlier, it basically uh, was a comparatively low-cost, non-escalatory, and highly effective uh, for the U.S. to be able to come in and intervene. And today, particularly by 2020, uh, that would be a very different calculation. China obviously has credible, if fundamentally unproven, uh, capacities to destable or destroy U.S. carriers uh, with incalculable implications for U.S. prestige globally uh, and making the efficacy of such an intervention much more questionable uh, in the current context. Uh, at the same time, U.S. military intervention would have significant escalatory potential uh, with these Chinese capabilities. <coughs> the most proximate set of options, obviously, for U.S. policymakers to counter China's growing range of A2AD capabilities would involve kinetic attacks on key nodes and systems, initially air defense, but also long-range precision strike. And so the prospect of substantial kinetic attacks against a thermonuclear power with highly credible conventional and strategic retaliatory capability 
would obviously give any U.S. president uh, some pause, especially when the likely proximate cause is an unmistakable move toward independence by Taiwan or uh, a uh, U.S. ally or partner's sort of assertion of murky claims in the South China Sea or uh, less so in the East China Sea in terms of the murkiness of the claims. What about the other half? Uh, this is uh, the incomplete part. Uh, and so what I frame it as the strides in the hardware that you've just been discussing are offset by what you might call software deficiencies. And uh, this is, uh, for example, the inability of the PLA to translate this weapons modernization that they've achieved into combat power for conducting truly integrated joint operations. This is the fundamental shortcoming uh, of the PLA at this stage. Their exercises remain obviously very scripted, um, and we don't see a lot of ability to really uh, integrate forces uh, from across the different services. And also, the assessment of their own senior commanders is uh, fairly negative of their capability. Uh, they, because they're communists, have uh, horrible jargons for all these things. Theirs is the two incompatibles. Uh, what it basically boils down to is that the assessment of their own commanders is that they cannot operate in the high, effectively in the highly informatized, as they call it, uh, environment which basically means a uh, serious C4ISR capabilities, a robust jamming environment, things of that nature. And the second piece is they lack the ability, they are incapable of really protecting their interests overseas and conducting operations far from shores. Um, and then it's also, of course, limited, and that's the poster here, our good friend Lei Feng <laughs> from uh, the Cultural <coughs> Revolution, uh, limited by the PLA standing as the armed wing of the Communist Party uh, rather than the National Military of China. And obviously, with that being their number one job, being keeping the party in power and preventing the Ceausescu-style scenario, uh, that has real implications for their ability to work toward integrated joint operations. When your senior officers are spending a significant amount of time in political training and so on, it's hard to do these very difficult things. Uh, likewise, the PLA has a very outdated command structure uh, currently. It is designed to repel a territorial threat from the Soviet Union. That's why you have military regions. Uh, their current structure, which is seven military regions, or the other purpose of military regions is for internal suppression, uh, all, the, all the Tiananmen. There's a very uh, real recognition in the PLA that this is a major inhibiting factor, and we've seen them take some steps, uh, most recently under the new leadership with Xi Jinping at the now famous Third Plenum in 2012, where interestingly, in the documents that were released publicly, you know, they could have simply said, our command structure is challenged, we need to do something about it. Instead, they gave a very direct and clear uh, sort of message as to what they do about it, and it is to go to a joint command system fairly similar to the US. Obviously, it's not gonna be exactly similar. They still have to deal with the political commissar situation and so on. But the point is to move towards something that will allow the PLA to become much more externally oriented, much more capable, much more lethal, obviously, as part of that. And then other software issues, you know, they have a, a uh, sort of, they've tried to develop uh, an NCO core. It has not been uh, particularly effective. Um, they have had difficulties with certain types of um, military modernization, uh, still very difficult in terms of building decent aircraft engines, things like this. Uh, and other uh, sort of doctrinal areas that they're looking into now that where they've had some shortcomings include, you know, we have this gear, how do we integrate it now into uh, something that has more combat power and also a shift in the focus. Traditionally, the focus in the PLA obviously has been on the ground services. 
um, and moving toward uh, more development of the Air Force and Navy. This is a sort of traditional challenge within the PLA, and we're starting to see some doctrinal changes that suggest uh, that they're moving in that direction. So uh, moving to the maritime stuff, does China indeed have a coherent maritime strategy? Here we have Xi Jinping giving some <laughs> lectures to his naval officers. Uh, my assessment is that they do uh, have a, a coherent maritime strategy <laughs> under Xi Jinping, and I think this is one of the hallmarks of the new leadership uh, under Xi himself. Uh, we saw this start probably slightly before Xi Jinping took over the leadership in 2012, but in the uh, political work report of the 18th Party Congress, which is what uh, brought Xi Jinping to power, um, we have in there a fundamental statement about China's capabilities in this area, which is to build China into a maritime power. Well, that's a very simple statement. Uh, doesn't sound too surprising in a document of some 2,200 and some odd pages. Uh, but the fact is no senior Chinese leader had said that in about 450 years. So it did give us a signal of where they were going um, in this respect. Xi Jinping has, of course, uh, gone forward with that since then. He's held a number of what they call Politburo study sessions. Uh, some of which have been publicized, some of which have been non-public, to talk about maritime security. Um, and in a um, foreign affairs work conference speech that he gave in the fall of 2014, these foreign affairs work conferences are very rare. Uh, China only generally holds them kind of once in a, in a particular leader's tenure, and it gives that leader the opportunity to map out, uh, you know, sort of his strategy for how things are going to look going forward during his tenure in foreign policy terms and security terms. Xi Jinping talked a lot about maritime um, in that. And then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, some of the doctrinal changes uh, we've seen in the defense white paper that was put out recently, this discussion of the PLA's enhanced mission to safeguard the security of China's overseas interests. Uh, this is new, um, and it has primarily to do with uh, their maritime strategy. Um, interestingly, in the document, as I mentioned earlier, there's this constant tension between ground forces and the other services. Uh, in this new document, they say directly that the traditional emphasis on ground oversea has to be changed uh, and that there has to be more balance in that. And they also talk about expanding the mission of the PLA Navy from what you might call territorial defense along China's coast to a combination of territorial defense and what they call open seas uh, operations, which obviously uh, will expand their net quite a bit. Um, why are they doing this? Well, a big reason is a desire for strategic depth on their maritime periphery. This is totally understandable from a Chinese perspective. They've been invaded from the ocean many times over their history, um, and this is the first real opportunity they've had to try to see if they can't push that border out a little bit and give themselves some operating space um, in that area. And then uh, also uh, along the same lines, uh, setting expectations for the regional neighbors and for the United States. And Mike's going to talk a lot about uh, how the U.S. can focus on countering this. But the message from the PLA and the Chinese leadership is really quite simple. And that is that our forces intend to operate in this area out to the second island chain, uh, Guam, that area, at times of our choosing, uh, perhaps occasionally with impunity. And the rest of you will have to accept that, or, or if you don't want to accept that, these areas mean a lot more to us uh, than they do to you. Uh, so my sense is everything that uh, the Chinese have been doing, whether it's the building on the islands in the South China Sea or their activities in the East China Sea, are designed to create uh, the space that they want and put this, these markers down to the U.S. and the regional neighbors uh, that this is how they intend to operate going forward. So it's very important for us, I think, as analysts, to make sure that when we're looking at a new airstrip on a particular reef in the South China Sea or something that we get, don't get too focused on that, but instead remember this is part of a larger context uh, that China's building toward. So why don't I stop there? And Very good. We'll go Great. Ahead.
That was Chris Johnson. In our One to Watch this week, we turn to Nepal's continuing recovery from a devastating earthquake back in April. Progress has been made by a variety of organisations, in part due to significant international funding to enhance relief and recovery efforts. However, shortages of fuel and vital medicine threaten the health of many Nepali quake survivors. Part of the challenge is political. A number of crucial shipments of supplies from relief organisations and NGOs have been blockaded by protesters at this Indian border that are part of a Nepali ethnic minority group, the Medesi. The Medesi protesters are demanding greater autonomy and political rights in the country's new constitution. The Nepali government in Kathmandu has been reluctant to grant their demands. India, which has so far been a stalwart actor in responding to the earthquake crisis, has taken the side of the Medesi people, with which northern India shares close ties. As a result, India's officials have delayed the transport of relief supplies, even on border crossings that are not blocked by protesters, to encourage the Nepal government to negotiate with the minority group. Unfortunately, the two sides have made little progress, and medical officials have indicated that time is running out for those suffering in Nepal. And that's our show for this week. You can always find more at cogitated.com and csis.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and also check out our island tracker and maritime-specific analysis on the Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative or AMTI microsite. I'm Colin Quinn. Thanks for listening.